Hello, everyone, and welcome to this rendition of Three Film Feature. This is the podcast-only format where you hear my recent episodes of Movie Tales in the audio format on the podcast feed. And this episode is full of a lot of firsts for the channel. We got the first Alfred Hitchcock film in Strangers on a Train. We got the first Kung Fu film in IP Man. And we got the first Disney film in The Black Hole. These are a bunch of fun films. I was so happy to discuss them and talk about them. They are all super well done and super cool. So let's take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to jump into episode four of Three Film Feature. Strangers on a Train. What a really seminal movie we're going to be talking about in this installment of Movie Tales. And for a few reasons. First off, it's the 10th episode we're doing of this show, which is kind of cool to see. 10th episode. If you're listening to this on the podcast feed, it's the 4th episode. But eh, here or there, it doesn't matter. It's also seminal because this is the first time in a series of videos that I'm going to be talking about Alfred Hitchcock. Because I don't normally like talk about the filmmakers behind the scenes on these movies when I do my reviews, but it's Hitchcock. You have to at least talk about him a little bit, and I plan on doing a video on Hitchcock eventually. But to say the least about him, he's a seminal filmmaker. He's one of the most influential creators ever. Like If you like anything in modern suspense or thriller or horror, chances are its roots are from Hitchcock. He is just one of those guys that knew a genre that was kind of untapped at the time and just turned it into something masterful and brilliant. And he wasn't afraid to do television, which some of these more big creators and directors don't like doing. But the guy just said, it's a, it's a creative space. Let's make a creative project on it and turned out some really great films. Strangers on the Train is a pretty interesting film. Now, is it in my top echelon of Hitchcock? I don't think so. Because that list is pretty much untapped with some of like, the best films ever made. Strangers on a Train is a pretty decent film. I can't wait to talk about it because there are certain moments where I just think it loses momentum. And it's very exciting to get to those points. So if you haven't seen this film, it's from 1951. And basically it's the story of these two gentlemen. Farley Granger plays a tennis player and we have Robert Walker come in here as Bruno. They are just two random strangers who meet on a train and they start talking it up and they just get into a weird conversation and Bruno decides I have this like theory in my head. He's got a bunch of these theories he likes to talk about and this theory is two people who have never met before can plan each other's murders and get away with it with no consequences involved. And he thinks that, you know, Granger's going to get involved in this because it makes sense. Like, he wants his ex-wife gone so he can get the divorce papers and go on to this new person that he's interested in. And Bruno here wants his dad killed so he can finally be free of the burden of his parents. It's a really smart concept. Like, it's one of those concepts that when you put it on paper, you're just like, this could work in any format. It'd be a good stage play. It'd be a good film. It'd be a good television series. It'd be a good book. And what Hitchcock does is really build up the suspense because in classic Hitchcock fashion, there is a murder. And when we see the murder of this tennis player's wife and just like the slow reveal of like Bruno following her through the carnival, going on the Ferris wheel and all these different rides to follow her to this like secluded location, you get that classic Hitchcock tension and it works really well, builds up its suspense really well. And just the simplicity of the murder where it's just strangling her, breaking her glasses off, just like the easy way. It's just a simple kill is super Hitchcock. Like it's just everything this guy does in his films. But then after that moment, I think the momentum kind of slows down. Now, it's not a bad film 
because it, it knows what it's doing and the suspense is still there like when Bruno is stalking Granger and just following him through all these places it works really well like you're just seeing like this mysterious man in the shadows following this rich wealthy dude and it's really cool but as the story progresses I think some of like the narrative structure falls a little flat on this it doesn't build up the tension great I think in the third act and when we get to the third act I'm just like really weird choices but I think when you're looking at Farley Granger's performance, he does a great job of just like knowing the situation is not in his favor and slowly losing control of everything happening around him. Because as soon as like the world gets bigger and he's kind of like the suspect for the murder of his wife, you see the, the, the shambles of his life crumble around him and it, it looks really cool. It feels really cool. But it just doesn't have some of the emotional impact of other Hitchcock movies. And maybe like one of the detriments to this film is comparing it to later Hitchcock because it's it's definitely earlier on in Hitchcock's career. So like the, the writing's there, but it's not perfectly executed yet. Maybe that's something I should just like step back and let it be because it's like this is earlier on. You're still figuring out the ropes, but still the tension is really well done. And like the quiet moments when Granger and Bruno are meeting, it is really cool to see you just like, hey, I killed him. I killed your wife, so why don't you come do the thing for me? No one has to know. It's all going to be hunky-dory. Everything works fine. And when you see Granger's kind of going like, maybe I should just kill this guy's dad. And he goes actually goes to the house to potentially kill the dad. And we see that it's Bruno in the bed because we know Granger's not going to actually do it. It's a very striking moment because there's so much cool stuff in there. Again, one of these things that's kind of become a trope is like the barking dog. And when we see Granger going into the home to kill the father, there's like the scene of the barking dog. You have to quiet it down, which he does a good job of presenting that. I think it's really cool. That's just become a big trope in everything. You know, if you have like this suspenseful moment, having that animal or that creature. It, I don't know if it comes from here, but I wouldn't be surprised if this is one of those big influences for that type of thing. Because it's really cool to see that. I think that was a really fun area to explore. And you know, Farley Granger does great. I think he's a tremendous actor who never really broke down some of the bigger stuff as compared to other people who worked with Hitchcock but Robert Walker man like this guy really just killed it and it's sad that I think he passed away the year that this film was released and he was like 30 something he's a young guy but he really just added this creepy nature to the character of Bruno where it's just like the quietness of every everything he does it just works really well it's very disturbing it's all in the eyes he's got like these really good <laughs> film eyes and I know that's weird to say but like he can just tell an entire story with the way he stares at someone with the way he smiles with the way he looks just like that intense stare and that glare from it it looks really intense and freaky and he was just like a perfect foil to our kind of pretty boy Granger here who's just the tennis player now, <laughs> one of my biggest criticisms of this film is probably the third act. And we kind of see, like, we got a plan to kind of catch Bruno and frame him for the actual murder of the wife because he did it. So before that, we kind of, like, got to get Granger out of, like, this tennis match and get him to, like, this certain area where he can, like, leave town and actually not be framed for the murder. But before we get there and he before he can actually, like, leave town, we have to sit through about 10 minutes of an actual tennis match which is so boring and it literally just like slows the story down really fast and I know it's supposed to be like this really intense moment where it's like look at well, everything going on around us like the intensity of what this guy is feeling what Granger is going through as he's playing this tennis match you don't get that feeling you really don't you just see like there are two dudes here just hitting the ball around we're watching the audience look left and right it is insanely boring <laughs> and it kind of just takes you out for a bit 
and the tension's still slightly there in that moment, but you're just kind of like bored as it's happening. And you're like, yeah, okay, we're spending a lot of time watching the tennis match. Like, I think later on in Hitchcock's career, we'd maybe have more things going on in the tennis match. And I know we have like Bruno drop, dropping like the the match holder into like this the sewer, which kind of adds like, is he going to be able to like pin it all on Granger, which he of course doesn't. And again, going back to the carnival at the end of this movie is pretty interesting. I will say, like, that final fight, like, you could call it a fight. It's not really a fight on the carousel. It is shot really good. Like, it actually looks very fun. It's an, like, not every filmmaker, I think, could make that look as good as it did because, you know, you're doing, like, the spinning effects around everything. You have to keep the characters in frame while you are constant motion. You have, like, all these other side characters who are supposed to be clinging on for their life as this carousel spinning really fast. But what happens in that scene, which I think is really silly, and just I just like, wow, this was dumb. It's just so weird. The only reason the carousel can get shut off is like an 80-year-old man just crawling underneath it while the entirety of the fairgoers and the police force are just watching this old dude crawl underneath the spinning carousel. You're telling me that none of these other people could get under there? Like one of like the younger police officers who wasn't over 70 years old couldn't get under there and do this it's just like this is so funny for no reason we're all just like crouching on our knees watching this old dude shut off the carousel which is just a big lever that you put to stop uh it's fun but it's silly it's a silly thing to do and i just think you know for an early hitchcock film you see all the beats going on there the tension is well the characterizations are well there's some really great characters in here we see one of granger's like his lover the sister to the her who kind of looks like his dead wife she is a really fascinating character that i don't think you'd see a lot of in a 50s movie where she is just so adamant on like the idea of like murder and like that kind of stuff i guess if you like stated that she read a lot of books and she likes that topic it's fascinating but just as like a standalone character, that girl really shined through as somebody unique because you don't really see it, especially like a leading character in a film like this having glasses. That's not something you particularly see a lot, especially like what really stuck out to me again. This is really going off topic for a second, but like having Granger's wife like wear glasses throughout the entirety of the film and still be like like described and seen as like this beautiful figure is not something you saw a lot of in these older movies so i think that's kind of cool that she was still this powerful woman while maintaining this thing that hollywood has pretty much stated isn't this attractive feature back in that day like it's just kind of fascinating that that's what she got to look like and experience i think that's a pretty cool thing to see but of course the standout to me is robert walker he crushed it he did so much cool stuff in this movie it's sad he never really got to have a career after it i wish he could have done more because there's probably a lot he could have done that'd be fascinating to see Strangers on a Train, it's a nice suspenseful film, it's an early Hitchcock, and you're seeing a lot of those early beats hit those notes really well, sometimes it falls flat, if you like tennis, you'll probably like the tennis stuff in here, but if you don't, it's definitely going to take you out of the film. It's a decent one, it's kind of funny, and it's classically suspenseful, so it's not a bad film by any stretch of the word, but sometimes you just take yourself out of the movie and realize that as good as the actors are, there's only so much you can do for suspense thing of guys creeping up on each other to plant a murder. I like this film. I recommend checking it out. Ip Man, or IP Man, or Yip Man. I'm not really sure how it's pronounced. I think it's Yip. So, this is a film from 2008... Starring Donnie Yen, who I'm very familiar with. I love his work. But the Ip Man stuff is something I never really 
got into before. I just never had the drive to watch it or get involved in it. I, I thought, you know, let's give it a shot. I, I like this guy. I like this world. I want to get more into martial arts films. And I was really blown away by this movie. First off, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say something really dumb. And that is that I didn't know that this was a real guy. I didn't know that the Ip Man, that this person existed and that he was a famed martial artist throughout history and that he trained Bruce Lee. I wasn't aware of any of that when I went into this. So seeing it at the end of the film, I was like, what? <laughs> this is real shit? Like this, I'm sure this was a little more, you know, like cinematic, but this guy existed. He did these things. That's amazing because it's pretty believable that this would be something that happened. It's kind of weird and very awkward at times, but I'm like, yeah, this makes sense if this was the world at the time. I mean, I had no expectations going into this. I'm like, a martial arts film with Donnie Yen? Let's go, let's get it. It opens up in this beautiful idea that Fo Shen is just a kung fu town. People have, you know, a bunch of dojos and like training studios and all that stuff where you can just practice martial arts from the best. And this guy, Ip, he's just the most popular and the most famous guy across the entire town. And everybody wants to fight him and train with him. He's just so good that it's all just flawless. He can just show up and just kick anybody's ass. He doesn't have to work hard for it. And I think that's really cool because it's that's a very believable character. And he's young, too. You know, this guy, he looks young. And the fact that he's trained that much to do it is pretty cool. And Donnie Yen, I mean, I like this guy. I've enjoyed a lot of his work. He's great. He knocks this role out of the park. He just committed to it so much. I think just the parts of it I really liked are just like his non-bullshitting smiles. Just the way he's like having a good time in certain situations. He's like, okay, they want to do this thing. Well, I'll be involved in that thing and that kind of stuff. And just the way when he actually starts fighting, it's just so stiff. Like he he's so choreographed and well-trained that it isn't this big sweeping motion for him. It's just like, I'm doing this. Like, I'm just standing there moving my arms. I don't have to exude any external force for this. I just know how to win. And it looks really cool. It's like the first 30 minutes of this movie are just like, hey, I'm fighting this guy who's opening up a dojo. I beat him. We don't want to tell anybody. And it's like, my, my buddy here is going to maybe open up like a cotton factory so we can like, you know, get some money coming to this town. Some outsiders come in. They want to fight me. A beautiful fight scene where he's fighting Jin and all these other outsiders who are coming in just, you know, like prove their worth the town of Foshen and the Ep man just kind of takes them down but then something I wasn't expecting <laughs> is about like I said 30 minutes in it is a hard shift from this fantastical idea of this perfect martial artist just kicking the ass out of everyone who comes near him to we're in the belly of World War II Japan has invaded China, like our entire town is destroyed, everybody is just like poor and starving, even the Ip Man and his family, they have to go kind of like lose their big house, struggle to survive, do random work for rice, and just like see him struggling to work and maintain his life, and I'm just like, where did this come from? <laughs> and again, I went into this not knowing this guy was a real guy, so I'm like, this is a really weird choice, but I'm gonna follow it. 
and it pays off cool. So the other big premise of this is like there's this, you know, Japanese general who like wants to like have these Chinese guys fight against his Japanese Kung Fu guys and he'll give them rice if they can beat any of his guys. And it just kind of becomes like, you know, overthrowing the power of that thing. And you so as soon as like Ip comes in to do this kind of stuff after seeing that a couple of the people he wants to do in his past life are there and they get killed for certain things and you just see what this guy's doing. It's like, whoa. This is badass. And I mean, it goes without saying that the fighting in a show like this is just incredible, but I think it's brilliant. And, and I'm not like a choreographer. I don't know like all the details for it stuff, but I just like how effortless it looks for the Ip Man here. He just comes in, he does his stuff, and he just leaves. Like it's not this extraneous thing. And I think that's really cool. And I like that everyone's kind of like got their distinct style when they fight. It's just very cool to see that kind of stuff. And, you know, when he's taken on, like, ten of the Japanese soldiers at once, I think it's really cool. And he's just so good at, like, the close quarters combat. Just, like, the six-inch punch, pretty much. He's, like, right up in there. And, like, the fast drives on those. It's amazing. It looks really cool. And, I mean, the it just looks fantastic. It's so nice to see that stuff. It's just really fascinating to see that world. And, again... You go into something like this for the, you know, martial arts. You go in to see the Kung Fu, and it's there in spades. Every single fight scene is unique and well choreographed, and it looks brilliant, and it's this really interesting piece. It's just great, and it, it looks hard, too. It's not like just like these sweeping epics. Like, you're hearing the sounds of getting hit and the punching and the, just the blood that forms. Just, just like after, like, one punch when you get knocked in the face and your teeth are bloody and your nose is dripping, you feel the weight of those punches, and I think that's a really, really cool thing to see. But also, there's a really interesting story in here. You know, I wasn't expecting it to be this World War II thing where, you know, Jap Japan comes in and ruins everything for these people. And then you see this guy throughout the entirety of the movie and the Ip Man just struggling to balance the two sides as he stay with his wife and his son and have the normal family life. And what does he do to protect the people who have pretty much given him everything? And when he, like, defends the honor of the town at the beginning of the movie and everyone's there for it, how can he do that again later after the Japanese have invaded? It's really intense and it's really, really good. And I just... I wasn't expecting that level of commitment to both sides of it. And I, I've read some reviews that kind of like go against that this was like a, an emotionally investing film. But I'm like, what are you watching? Like the guy watched one of like his closest friends, like this Master Liu, just get beaten in front of him. And you see like this other kid he knows just literally gets shot down by the Japanese <laughs> general just because he did something different. He's trying to fight him. You're just like, how is that not gripping? And, you know, like when his wife just like, you have to do this thing, you have to go and help him. That's awesome. It's really powerful stuff too. And it's just so cool to see that side of things. And I think my favorite character in all of this was the officer Lee. I, I just, his story was really fun. Just going like, I'm, I'm trying to survive here. I'm not a big martial arts guy. He makes a big spectacle of being for the firepower and the guns. And then when he's coming in and you see this, like, he's the interpreter for the Japanese. He's trying to protect his people while still keeping his own life. And I love, like, one of my favorite scenes in this movie is just when Ip is like, you sold out. He's just like, why are you doing this? You're not even helping your people. He's like, I'm trying to survive the same as you. If this is what I'm doing to survive, that's what I'm doing. And I'm trying to tell you, like, don't do this fight. I loved the Officer Lee. I think he was such a fun and interesting character that has added something extra to this. I just enjoyed him, his performance so much. It was just really, 
really cool to see what he could do. And it just it's just something about that just works so well and just it's this really interesting dynamic between it all. I enjoyed it a lot. So I think he was my favorite character, just being like trying to protect his people, but still realizing that I'm in this position where I'm going to get hurt no matter what I do. How do I protect the Ip Man and everybody in this village pretty much? I don't know how to do that without getting myself or everyone else hurt. A really cool character that worked really well. It was just so cool to see that. And I think the final fight in this film, it could have been like this really intense thing. You know, you got the entire town watching as the man is fighting. I think it's General Muria, Mora, Mora or something like that. You could be like, this is, the, we've been waiting for this. This is the climax of our film. It is such an easy fight. He, he takes this general down pretty easily in this beautiful spectacle of stuff. And I think that's a really cool thing. And just like the narration after that, it's like he never bowed down to the Japanese army. He had to go into hiding into Hong Kong, but he never like, you know, gave up. He just kept fighting through all that stuff. And I'm like, that's really cool. This guy sounds really awesome. I'm, I'm super glad he got a bunch of movies because there's, there's four in the Donnie Yen stuff. And there's like, a whole spectacle of them elsewhere. Just a bunch of these movies being made of this guy. It's awesome. Because the fight scenes are so good and gripping. You feel the brutality. Yet the pageantry to martial arts in here too. Like it looks beautiful. But it packs a punch. The sound effects are fantastic. Whoever did the sound mixing for this. Just like the weight of everything hitting. The, all the bags. And just the way everything worked was really cool. And Donnie Yen. Can't sing the praises of this guy enough. He's just... An incredible performer who knows his range and knows how to make stuff work within that range. And this performance, probably some of the best stuff he's ever delivered. I don't know why people don't like this movie because it's just really strong, really interesting. It does so much for this character and this world. Makes the It Man a legacy and shows you the intensity of this guy. And I know just like the the big dramatic change from going from just like we're fighting guys who want to see how good our town is to we're starving. I'm trying to feed my son while my wife is sick. I have to work in the coal mines to figure everything out. It's a huge shift and it works so well for the movie. And you see why this guy was so revered and so respected. And this film just was really intense. I, I really recommend checking it out because it's surprising. It's engaging. It is so cool and so fun. There's not much else like it. There really isn't. It's just that interesting, that cool. And Ip Man or IP Man or Yip Man, whatever it is called, this guy's a badass. So you should check out the series of films. I'm definitely going to be coming back to talk about the next three at some point. Probably not for a bit, but you can damn well be sure that we're not going to be done with the Yip Man on this channel. <laughs> The Black Hole. That's right. On this episode of Movie Tales, we are headed back to 1979 to dive into our first Disney film. Is that surprising? Yes. I can't believe I haven't done a Disney film yet because I'm a big Disney guy, but hey, it's The Black Hole. The pinnacle science fiction for the PG audience. One of the first PG movies Disney ever made. It's also one of the last movies ever made to feature the overture where all the information comes to you at the beginning of the movie. Sadly, if you're watching this on Disney+, Plus. You don't see those features because they have it blacked out, which is weird to me why they didn't have it. I guess I think somewhere over time it was lost or something, but the audio remained. Just get rid of it then, whatever. Okay. <laughs> We've talked about a lot of movies on this so far, ranging a genre of just everything in film. The Black Hole, out of all the movies we looked at so far, and again, this is only 12 episodes in, 
The Black Hole is my favorite film we've talked about. I absolutely adored this. I have the vaguest recollection of it from when I watched it when I was younger. I haven't seen it since. And it was one of the ones that I'm like, as soon as I said, I'm going to do this show, I knew I had to do The Black Hole. Because I loved it. This film is great. The practical effects look great. Just the way the ships look, the way the ships move, the costume set, the setting, the set dressing is unbelievably fantastic. Like when we're in the Palomino, it just looks incredible. Like just the tight spaces, the way the ship is just so bulky and full of like these blocky textures and everything. We go to the Cygnus and everything is so vast and expansive. It looks absolutely spectacular. And I love the way that 70s and 80s films try to capture the future because it is so inaccurate. Everything is still so blocky in this like full thing. I love, one of my favorite parts of this movie is when they're scanning the Cygnus while they're on the Palomino. And it's just a, a traced outline of all the ships from Earth. And they're just sending it around to see if it fits in the diagram. It is so great to see that. So it's called The Black Hole. Basically, we are the crew of some small amounts of people here. Five, maybe, if you count Vincent. Basically, we're like, okay, we're going to look at a ship. It's by a black hole. The black hole is kind of pulling us in. And that's something I, I kind of want to talk about too. Like, I know people are like, Disney's rebooting all their stuff, but they could never make the black hole because there's a good 20 minutes of this film that is just them trying to evade getting sucked into a black hole. It's slow. It's just a bunch of 40-year-old men sitting in front of like a bulky computer, pushing buttons and yelling at each other. It's awesome. It just looks so cool. And it was so fun to see that. The costumes are great for this. But they get away from the black hole. They see the ship that they were trying to signal in called the Cygnus. They're like, oh, we should go check that out because the lights suddenly turned on. And what ensues is a brilliant portrayal of one man's insanity going too far. So let's get into some of the character moments and some of the characters in this. This is our second film starring Yvette Mignot, which is kind of impressive to me. I didn't think we'd be getting that much of her this soon. She is fantastic. She looks completely different than what she did in The Time Machine. She delivers a performance that's slightly getting better than what we saw her do 18 or 19 years prior. She actually gets to hold a gun in this one. She gets to be part of the crew, fire away, but she is still the damsel in distress sometimes, which really sucks to see because she's obviously the best actor on the ship. She did fantastic. I loved seeing her performance. Anthony Perkins. Weird that this is our first Anthony Perkins film, but... Again, he definitely has a distinctive look that you fully understand. And his his whole deal is like he wants to join the sickness and all the weird things that like Dr. Reinhardt is doing. He's like, I trust this guy. I want to be a part of this. And when he dies, and I'm going to say he dies because they spoiled it in the trailers. So when he dies, it is so satisfying because you're like, this guy's kind of sucky, but he kind of makes the right choice at the end. I love it. He did fantastic. Anthony Perkins, a fantastic actor. Ernest Borgnine, <laughs> oh, there he is. There's nothing better than just a crew of young, sexy people and Ernest Borgnine just showing up, just doing himself. Like, why is he a part of this crew? They call him a reporter. What's he reporting on? It's so silly, and I love it. Just a 60, he looks 60. He looks ancient in this film, but he's not that old because he outlived half the cast. He just looked really old in this. He, it's so great to see him just being a, a, a curmudgeon old man just running about with a beer belly just like faking a leg injury to sneak on the ship and then get blown up it's absolutely fantastic stuff of course the actor who plays Pizer, i can't remember his name he's he's i love that they call him like the kid 
and he looks like he's like 28. <laughs> he's like the youngest one, but he looks older than me. I think that's fantastic. And of course, Robert Forster, the legend himself as like commander, was it, is he Captain Dan Holland? Is that his character? Either way, man, perfect. Per he, he is the best. Forster just knows how to command a room. He's got that certain like energy to him. I'd call it like a modern day like Kyle Chandler, where you just like that distinctive look. You just understand like, okay, he's tough, he's gruff, he's been through a lot, but he's also kind of sweet and he's got that sensitive side and he's willing to do the right thing. He commands this movie. He makes it work completely well. Absolutely fantastic to see his performance in here. But I will say the standout, of course, is Dr. Reinhardt because the actor playing a Maximilian, I don't understand how this man made it work so well. He's like this creepy old Dr. Zayas type that's like, big bushy hair all over the place, this ginormous beard. He is a sociopath from day one. And basically, he's the last surviving member of his crew. If you're seeing the audio format, you can't see the air quotes I made, but he is, you know, making these robots to monitor the ship and keep everything in check. And when these people come aboard, he's like, we're going through the black hole, baby. There's something waiting for me over there. I got to figure out what it is. What a great villain. Because from the get-go, you understand this guy has space madness. Whatever you want to describe it as, this guy has lost his mind to the point where he's literally destroyed his crew. Like, the reveal, and I'm going to say it because I know a lot of young people might not want to watch this, but the reveal that the robots he has monitoring his ship and, like, doing, like, a lot of the maintenance work and the crewman work are actually, like, half-dead humans. And when we see Anthony Perkins pull off the face mask to reveal that image of the human, that is fantastic. That is what makes this PG. That is what ups this just a little bit more to make it a little more scary. Because if they were just completely dead, yeah. I mean, robots are frightening. But the fact that these are humans and you just see, like, the way they're all just slowly dying and decrepit and they're broken and they can't win. And then suddenly they have funerals for those of them who do die. And when they just, like, the ship starts to crash down and break apart, they can't leave because they don't know how to leave. And they watch Reinhardt just get blown up and die. It is intense. It is scary stuff. It's honestly, it's frightening. And I'm just like, this is PG? Because this is intense. This is terrifying stuff. I'd be scared as hell if I saw this when I was younger. And maybe I was, because it's just like, they're practically like zombies that are half machine, just watching their creator die. And they're like, watching him scream for help. And they're not doing anything to stop it. It's really intense, really terrifying absolutely bonkers i love it so much it is just so cool it's so fun so engaging i loved every second of that stuff like that whole storyline was fantastic the way that we kind of like the third oh my god the third act of this film is really well done i watched i'm going to assume with like the remastered visual effects the camera work in this is unbelievably good like it is just so perfect it's prestigious it's it's quality filmmaking it looks like a cinematic treasure that is really cool to see there's like great shots where like the big like sunbeam is falling down on our last surviving characters and we get like the silhouette of them running across the beam that stuff looked really cool and really intense and the remastered effects really helped that out but there's one part of this that i cannot wait to bring up and that of course is the robots because there's a bunch of robots in this and one of the things that is absolutely unreal is that there's an entire side story 
dedicated to the old model of Vincent. And we'll get to Vincent in a bit here. His name is Bob. He is challenging the, the pretty much like the leader of the like centurion looking robots, you know, like the Royal Guard looking guys. They're just shooting lasers at balls in space. There's like a good 10 minutes dedicated to this like historic rivalry between Star, who was replaced by Maximilian, and Bob. Just shooting lasers and stuff. And it's unreal that we, we took the time to do that. And again, it goes to this thing I, I want to specify with this film. You could easily remake it, but you would never make it. You know, it's like you could adapt this perfectly, but you would never adapt it perfectly. Because you could never spend 10 minutes dedicated to this stupid ball-shaped robot shooting lasers at Darth Vader's, like, balls. It's ridiculous. And it works so well. So speaking of Bob, he is the older model of Vincent. And Vincent is a main cast member here. He's a bulbous little guy floating around. Very R2-D2 inspired, I'd imagine. He could easily get annoying, but there isn't a moment for him to do so. You like Vincent from the get-go. He's a compelling lead. He's a compelling, fun character. And he's very capable. You know, he makes quips. He's very jokey. It's like if you combined, you know, Orko and R2 and 3PO and everything from those stupid robots that you like and brought them together. I love that Bob has a Southern accent. <laughs> it just makes no sense to me. I love that Vincent has a more English traditional accent. I adore that. And their rivalry with Maximilian the robot is fantastic. Maximilian, one of the greatest designs for any machine in cinematic history. A beautiful piece of just scarlet destruction running towards you. I adore it, and I love the way he gets taken out slightly, slightly taken out by just Vincent, like, driving a saw through his chest like he stabbed a row. Oh, it's, it's amazing. I, I love Maximilian. I love Vincent. They are some iconic designs. If you know anything from this movie, it's those designs. They are fantastic. But that last, I don't know, five minutes, you, you lose me. <laughs> you lose me. I'm just like, okay. Reinhardt goes inside Maximilian and it looks like all the people that are dead are inside hell while the our remaining crew members blast off into the black hole and they survive. What the hell is that about? It's so weird. But I, I just, I love it. I love everything about this movie. The stupid costumes, the goofy premise, the way it talks about a black hole, the way that some guy just becomes completely unhinged and makes his crew into zombies. The robot designs are great. The cast is great. Yvette Mignot is fantastic. Everything about this film, it works. It's not going to be for everybody, but it works. And it could work today, but it would never capture the magic that this one does. I think The Black Hole is a fantastic film and some of the best stuff, some of the best stuff to come out of that era of Disney. It is a fantastic watch, and I recommend checking out The Black Hole. You will not be disappointed. So thank you guys for watching this episode of Galactic Tales. If you have any recommendations for films you'd like to see me talk about, leave them in the comments below or email me if you're listening to the audio format. As always, you can like and subscribe to the channel. It really helps out here. And of course, you can check me out on Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter. I will catch you in the next one. Have fun. Stay safe. Good luck.